0: Well, good evening. It's good to see you all here tonight. Tonight is our last time meeting on Thursday nights. Remember, next week we start on Wednesdays, okay, because Thursday night is going to be the high school group, so if you come here, them high schoolers will be here, right, Heaven? You'll be here next Thursday, right? Yes, you will. So... We are going to be meeting Wednesdays starting next week. Just a reminder. I know we've said this a while or for a while now, but I'm sure there will still be people who forget. Okay. Tonight we are in John chapter 4. And I love this passage of John and We'll get to find out all the reasons because I'm here and I've got the mic, so I'll tell you why I love them. But first, let's start in verse 1 through 3. It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. We saw that last week. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Let's start with this. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had become aware of him. So he left. Why do you think that is? Why would Jesus leave as he's becoming popular and people are now finding out? Any thoughts on why he left? I mean... Wouldn't you think you would stay as you get popular? That's the normal thing to do. Of course, we don't do that. Every time we start staying in one place, we change the dates or we move to a different building or a different location. So we're following Jesus. Um, the Pharisees were going to be people who were going to be constantly in opposition to Jesus. And so instead of confronting and dealing with the opposition, he actually leaves. And he was gaining more disciples than John. In other words, more people are following him, even though Jesus himself was not baptizing. And and I think it's interesting that John presents that fact because he wanted us to know that Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing, it was his disciples that were doing the baptizing. And, And That is probably so that we would have a clear understanding of not only its importance, but what it was doing. It was connecting us to Jesus, the recognition of repentance. But Jesus himself was not doing that baptizing, doing the baptizing. So he left Judea. Judea is up in the... The southern area. It's down in the southern area. It's down in the southern area, and he went back to Galilee, which is up in the northern region. And so he is leaving and and moving to a different region. The Judea, Jerusalem is in the south. Galilee is up in the north. And now let's read this situation. That takes place with the woman. We're going to read the whole situ- whole passage and then we'll go back. So I want you to be thinking about things that stand out to you. Any questions you have, we'll engage in those questions and we'll talk about it after I give a little summary on what's taking place. Verse 4, it says, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors ancestors worshipped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. We'll stop there. Hopefully we'll get to go a little further on. Samaria a place in between Galilee and Judea to travel from one place to the other was about a 3 days journey however samaria was inhabited by samaritans makes sense right samaritans were not fully jewish back In 720 BC, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Samaria and they began to intermarry with the incoming foreigners as they had reign of that land and thereby in the Jewish mind committed one of the most unforgivable crimes and that was that they lost their racial purity. Their lineage now was being corrupted because they were intermarrying with foreigners. And those who intermarried with the incoming strangers, they they lost their rights to be called Jews at all. That also continued in a similar way. Another invasion and defeat happened in the southern kingdom, whose capital at that time was Jerusalem, and, and that was with the Babylonians when they were carried off. They didn't lose their identity as the northern kingdom did. They remained stubbornly and unalterably Jewish. But in that time, there also came in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiles returned to Jerusalem because the Persian king allowed them to. And they wanted to repair the walls, rebuild a temple so that they could continue their worship. And the Samaritans, those who had been invaded previously and had intermarried, wanted to help and be a part of this new work, but they were told that they couldn't help, that they weren't wanted, that they had lost their Jewish heritage, and they had no right to share in the rebuilding of the house of God, and so under this, they were bitter rivals and became really against the Jews of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it was about four hundred and fifty BC when that quarrel took place, and it was bitter to the day of Christ. So you've got a hat fill and McCoy like you've never had before. Okay? You have extreme prejudice. You have people who are very Embittered about these people, one towards the other. In fact, so much so that many Jews would not even go through Samaria, even though it took twice as long, they would rather travel around so that they would not contaminate themselves with these people. And so we're talking about this harsh and stark prejudice that's taking place at this time. Remember, John is writing these things to tell us and show us how Jesus has broken down these barriers that used to segregate the people, that God was doing a new work and bringing all men to himself. And that didn't happen just after Jesus. It was happening in in Jesus's own ministry. And so he goes through Samaria purposefully. He comes to this plot of ground, a piece of ground which had been bought by Jacob back in Genesis chapter 33, and Jacob on his deathbed had bequeathed that ground to Joseph, and that's in Genesis 48. And on Joseph's death in Egypt, his body had been taken back to Palestine and buried there. And that's in Joshua 24. And so there's this history, this legacy of this ground that they're at. And so around this area, they're gathered a lot of Jewish memories, but now it was inhabited by the Samaritans. And so this ground is considered special, sacred. And that's where Jesus is with this woman. And as he's there, he comes in about noonday says that he's tired from the journey. He sits down and it's about noon. So it's the heat of the day. Remember, the Jewish day runs from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's how they break up their calendar. And so this is the middle of the day about noon. So that's giving you a little backdrop of what's happening. The woman's going to come, it's about a half mile where she's traveling from, which is interesting because the city probably had water, but she was leaving the city for about half mile to travel in the midday, which is an unusual time to get water, probably because she's not a person who is welcomed by others. I mean, after all, she's had five husbands, she's living with the guy now who's not her husband, and so she's probably got a reputation that isn't very good. And so instead of enduring the sneers and looks from the other people, the other ladies and things at the well, she comes out in the midday, travels all by herself this distance, encounters Jesus. Let me ask you before we go further and just deal and talk about the encounter, Understanding this Jewish Samaritan quarrel that's over 400 years old, but is still just smoldering and resentful and bitter as ever. What are your thoughts or any questions that come out from this passage that we just read? Any questions you have on the interaction between Jesus and this woman? Yes, Eileen. So like Jesus and so unlike us. What Jesus does here is radical. Not only interacting with the Samaritans, but interacting with a woman who is a Samaritan. The rabbis would not even engage a conversation with a woman because. They didn't want to be defiled or tempted, and so they would steer themselves away. They wouldn't even talk to their own wives or daughters in public, some of the rabbis. That was how strict they were in their regulations. And we see some of those kind of cultural things taking place in the Middle East today where the women are completely covered and the whole idea is you know, that they're a temptation so they need to cover themselves. And here Jesus goes, sits at the well, Samaritan territory, and starts conversation with a woman. All the stereotypes, all those prejudices, all those things that people had put in front of them, he just ignores them and carries on And treats her like a human being. And it is telling, especially at this time, what that meant and how it would apply to us today. You know, when she came to draw water, again, at this time, Jesus says to her and he he asks of her, will you give me to drink Give me something to drink. Him talking to her. He is breaking all kinds of traditions and rules. Don't you talk to a woman. What are people going to think of you? Are you going to lose your integrity? I think it's interesting that we try to put things to keep us and help us to be accountable. You know, I know one uh, church that everyone who works at that church has to sign an agreement. And in that agreement, there are things that are stipulated to try and keep people from any appearance of evil. They're not allowed to smoke. They're not allowed to drink any alcohol. They're not allowed to text or email or instant message a person of the opposite sex, unless it's their spouse. It. it, So, and that rule is there to try and keep them from entering into a place where they'll have an affair. And it's meant, you know, for the married people, of course. But in spite of all these regulations, they've still had people have affairs. You see, all the regulations in the world aren't going to stop them. And all the accountability barricades that you put, aren't going to stop the human heart. You, you can cover a woman head to toe, and a man can still lust after her. And if you can lie to your wife, you can probably lie to your accountability group. What's required is integrity. I remember one time going to El Tepiac out in East L.A., best Mexican food in East L.A., And I took my sales manager out there when I was working uh, as a hardwood wholesaler. And we went and were in LA for a while. And we were coming back. It was just after lunchtime, about 1 o'clock. I said, hey, I know a great place. Let's get some Mexican food. And so we waited in line for a little bit out there. If you've been there, you know you always wait because there's always people there. And it was busy, so we had to sit at the bar. But that was actually good because there's a little bit more room. So we're sitting at the counter there. It's not a bar. It's a counter. But then Manuel, the owner who was there, he started striking up a conversation with us. He's asking us what we did, and you know he's talking about the business. And then he pulls out this bottle of tequila and puts it on the boom. He goes, "You want a shot of tequila?" And I'm like, "No, I'm good right now. I'm still still working right now." And he says, "You know, I used to be an alcoholic." And I go, "Oh, okay. That thanks for letting me know." And he goes, "Yeah." And he started telling us about how alcohol destroyed his life. And here he's offering us tequila, and I'm like what am I supposed to take this at? But what struck me is that he had stopped drinking. And he put the bottle of tequila there. He knew he couldn't drink that. You see, he decided himself, I'm not going to drink this anymore. He didn't go to a group or, you know, hey, I'm feeling tempted, I'm going to call you, I might have a shot of tequila, you know. Okay, I better not have it under the counter. (laughs) I don't know why it was there. But he had made up his own mind not to drink because of the devastation it caused himself. And again, that saying, some people don't change until the pain of remaining the same exceeds the pain of the change. And maybe that was the case with him. He finally said, enough is enough. I'm going to stop drinking. But you see, he made the decision. He had to show the self-restraint. He had to show the integrity. You see, these rules and regulations to stop a a man from having uh, uh, sinful thoughts or engage in an affair that were put there didn't stop those things from happening because it starts in the heart. And if you don't deal with it in the heart, it doesn't matter all the obstacles you put there, you will find a way over them. And so Jesus spoke to this woman. He didn't have to worry about all the traditions because he had integrity in his heart. He treated her the way she was supposed to be treated. And he acted the way he was supposed to act. And so immediately this conversation begins, and this woman, verse 9, says to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She was shocked are you flirting with me? That's one of the commentators had that, like, what's going on? Why would you talk to me unless you want something? Because the Jews do not have association with the Samaritans. And John explains this for his Greek readers here. The Jewish people knew. But remember, he's writing both to the Jews and the Greeks. And so he gives this little parenthesis so that those who are not of the Jewish faith would understand that there's no contact between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so she says, why are you doing this? And then Jesus' answer, notice how similar this is to his dialogue with Nicodemus. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, the word living water in the ordinary language, the, the Jews thought of living water as running water, as fresh water. And the well is collected water. So it's not, quote, living water. And so it has a natural implication. Of course, Jesus is meaning something spiritual. Remember the dialogue with Nicodemus, be born again, a natural understanding, but a spiritual implication, very similar. And so he asks her about this living water. This, this conversation is very similar. He makes a statement. The statement is taken in the wrong sense, naturally instead of spiritually, And so he's going to remake the statement in an even more vivid way. It's still going to be misunderstood, just like Nicodemus was. And then he's going to compel the person to discover and face the truth for themselves. Which is how Jesus did things, which I think is brilliant. Because what Jesus is doing is he's compelling the person to discover the truth from themselves, for themselves. And that was his usual method of teaching. And it's most effective. I mean, you think about it, there are certain truths which no one can accept unless they discover them themselves. There are certain things you just will not accept until you learn it yourself. You can tell your kids over and over and over again something, but then when they experience themselves, it's like the light bulb goes on. Oh, that's what you meant. And the same thing is true for us, but this is what Jesus does. He brings a statement. It's not understood. It's cloudy. What are you trying to say? He brings a statement again. still not understood, and he pushes them to try and make a conclusion. And that's what we're going to see happening She says, sir, remember, he just asked for this living water, said he would give her this fresh water in her mind. You have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep, probably about 100 feet deep. He has nothing to draw with. He doesn't have a bucket. In those times, they would carry like a a, a pouch that was made out of animal skin that could be folded and then open up. They would drop it in to the water and then bring it up so it was easier to carry, and so you don't have anything to draw with. You don't have a pouch. You don't have a rope. The, water's, the well's deep. Where can you get this living water? And then she says something very telling. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, what she is saying is that your statement is actually pretty arrogant and almost blasphemous because Jacob is our great ancestor. And when he came here, he had to dig this well to get the water for his family, for the cattle. Are you claiming to be able to get fresh water here where Jacob, our father, had to dig a well and do this? If you are, you're claiming to be wiser and more powerful than Jacob. And that is a claim that no one has the right to make. Who do you think you are saying this? And so this whole statement, are you greater than our father Jacob, is really a challenge to Jesus. Like, who do you think you are? This is special. This well was given to us by our father. You have resources better than him. He wasn't good enough to be able to do these things. And Jesus again, or she says, And he did so for his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, here's his statement again, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is now honing this conversation in point of fact that This is nothing less than a claim of the Messiah. In Isaiah 49, verse 10, it says, they shall not hunger or thirst when God is going to satisfy them. Psalm 36, with thee is the fountain of life. And so Jesus is making some statements that are pointing to who he is. And he says, "Will well within them springs of living water, welling up to eternal life, Jesus was using terms that anyone with spiritual insight could have understood. In other words, yeah, living water at first sounds like natural water, but it also was known to them to have an understanding of satisfying the thirst of the soul. It wasn't uncommon in their language, just like for us, you know, God can quench your thirst. We know what that means as opposed to just, well, thirst is only for water. The psalmist spoke of the soul being thirsty for the living God in Psalm 42. Or God's promise was, I will pour water on the thirsty land. You know, things like that give an understanding that God is going to satisfy with himself these things that are innate in us. And so he's pushing into this woman the understanding that there is something inside of you that you cannot quench. There is a thirst that you have that this water will never satisfy, but I can provide for you what will satisfy that thirst in your soul. And so he's pushing the conversation there, but she's still not quite getting it. In verse 15, the woman said to her, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to this water. She says, okay, I'll bite. Give it to me. Let's, Let's have this water. And she's almost chiding him. Okay, you got this water? Let's have it. I'm here. You don't have anything to draw with. Give me the water. Challenge. I call. Okay? Cards down. What have you got, Jesus? Don't ever call with Jesus, okay? He told her, go call your husband and come back. Now think about this, because we already read what happened, and we know what's going on. So this man, this Jewish man's talking to you about this living water And then he asks you, go get your husband. What are her thoughts? Okay, maybe he's not trying to pick up on me. He just called for my husband. I don't want to tell him everything that's gone on in my life. I don't have a husband. That's her answer. Makes sense. And he said, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is... You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. What would you do? Who told you? How do you know? And this pronunciation of how he knows these things is not in a way that's degrading her. What she said is quite true. He didn't call her an adulteress. He didn't call her a fornicator. He didn't slam her and say, if you want to get right with God, you need to leave the man you're with right now and repent and come to God. He just said, yeah, that's what, you're right. He's not your husband. And this is very similar to Jesus' calling Peter when he draws him to the fish, and you know he, he or Peter's fishing, and he says, "Hey, cast your net on the other side," and he's like, "We've been fishing all night, Jesus," but okay, we'll do what you say. And all of a sudden, a miracle happens. The fish, and Peter says, "Lord, I'm a man, a sinful man. Depart from me." Jesus just blows the lid off of everything and exposes what's probably the darkest secret in your life but doesn't condemn her. The Samaritan woman who is living with a man and has had five husbands and Jesus is just talking to her. Take this scenario and put it in our time. Who would this woman look like? And you fill in the blank. <laughs> you don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> A person who is outcast in society, a person who is looked upon in the lowest way, whatever that person might be, fill in the blanks. What if it's a person from a a different faith? What happened if you went into a mosque or a Buddhist temple? Why would you do that? Why would Jesus be at a well in Samaria talking to A Samaritan woman. What if it was a gay pride parade? Why would you be at a gay pride parade? What was Jesus doing talking to a Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and now living with a man who wasn't her husband and dialoguing with her? Pick a person who you would think of in the lowest form, and I guarantee you this person fits the bill of what Jesus is doing here and how he is dialoguing with her is an example to us of how we are to communicate with people. He's respectful, he's truthful, and he's loving. And that is a powerful truth to embrace and hold on to if we could understand this, the power of how it could change our ability to dialogue with the people around us. If we would just understand this and and grasp this. As she says, verse 19, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. She she immediately goes into then a different conversation. Okay, you're a prophet, something's going on, so let me ask you something that is important to me. And it's about worshiping God. I want to know then how I should worship God. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And so we worship here in our land. But you say we have to be in Jerusalem, that that's the place where you're supposed to worship. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. He's going to cut to the heart. He's going to answer her question, but he's going to lead her to a deeper understanding. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. Now, what's he saying there? What do you think he's saying? Why does he say, you Samaritans worship what you do not know? Any thoughts? Basically, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books, the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. And so they held on to the first five, but that was it. And so they didn't have a full revelation of all the things that God had done, especially through the Psalms and the prophets where God had foretold about the Messiah coming and what worship was going to look like. You worship what we, you don't know. We worship what we do know. The full revelation of Scripture that's been declared. For salvation is from the Jews. God has given us His revelation through the prophets to help us understand. And so that's what He's coming to. And he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come. So it's happening right now. He's making that real clear. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is not confined by things or by places, by temples, by idols. God is not going to be confined by your religious regulations. For they are the kind of people, that the worshipers that the Father seeks jesus is saying the day of your man-made rivalries it's coming to an end the day of your religious posturing is over zephaniah chapter 2 verse 11 zephaniah's vision was that men shall worship god each in his place malachi and malachi 111 had a dream that in every place incense would be offered As a pure offering to the name of God, it was not going to be limited, but it was going to be spread out all over the world, every person where they were at. Also, the day of needed sacrifice was coming to an end. Your sacrifices, all your obligations, it's over your posturing, your religious rituals, your, your thinking of one place as more important than the other, it's over. It's done. God has been waiting for the time when the true worshipers would worship in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. Now, I, I, I love, Jesus is just, he, he's reeling her in. He's just, whizz, 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 and then she'll run a little bit. Whizz, whizz, whizz. He, he's just reeling her in. Uh, you know, okay, you told me about all my husbands and where I'm at, and now you're telling me this thing about worship. Uh, one day the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to set everything right. He's going to explain everything to us, and then Jesus declares to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus tells a foreigner and a woman that he is the Messiah. He doesn't ever tell the Jewish leaders until the end, until he says, I am in the temple and they want to kill him. They have to pull it out of him, but he willfully gives it to this Samaritan woman. She gets the revelation. Amazing. Amazing. God reveals himself to the most, the people we'd least imagine. The people you would never think God would reveal himself to them, not to a Samaritan Not to a Samaritan woman, not to a Samaritan woman who's had five husbands and living with a guy now. Why would God reveal himself to her? Why not? And so he declares that he is the Messiah. Now, let's read verse 27. I think we can do this. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. What's he doing? Doesn't he know? He didn't have his accountability partners here with him. He, he should have waited for us. Now, who knows what's what people are going to think of him. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Wonder why they didn't ask. Probably because well, he's the rabbi. Right? Plus, he's doing miracles. I don't know. You ask him. No, I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. No, I'm good. I'm good. Chicken. Verse 28, then... Leaving her water jar, that meant that she was in a hurry. She didn't want to be weighed down carrying the water. It also meant she was coming back, right? That woman went to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. That must have drawn some attention. Everything I ever did, I want to hear that. But she's telling more than a person who knows everything she did. And remember this, that this conversation, this dialogue that we have, is kind of like, you know, the highlights. This isn't the entire conversation. Who knows how long they talked? Who knows how in-depth it went? Oh, I wish we did. I wish we had a complete dialogue of this conversation but we're just getting the the snippets the highlights of these things and when she's saying a man who told me everything I ever did what she is saying come and see the person who really knows me come and see the man who really understands me i mean there is such a desire within each of us to be understood that people would really know us, that they would know who we are. All those things that we think about that we're afraid to tell because people are going to think you're crazy. All those things that we we struggle with but you don't want to disclose because people think you're awful. All those things that you keep enclosed because you dare not let anyone else know except maybe a few people choice people and it's only after a time when you feel you could trust people but here is someone who knows everything about me and he didn't degrade me he led me to truth see that's what Jesus is supposed to do for us and through us what is that thing that you don't want anyone to know Jesus knows it he knows it and he's not waving his finger condemning you he's saying oh yeah you've been married 5 times and you're living with a guy who's not your husband what you said is true and then he's going to lead you into a, a deeper more powerful conversation about what is true and about who he is about who he can be for you and so it's powerful could this be the Messiah? Verse thirty, then came out of the town, then they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Again, typical to John's writing, Jesus begins with something that they misunderstand. You know, I have food that you don't know, and then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? And they were worried because did he eat Samaritan food? That's not kosher. You don't eat Samaritan food. We got the right food for you. Oh, no, maybe he defiled himself. And so Jesus, of course, is speaking something else. He says, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvest the crop of eternal for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and other reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And so Jesus says, I have food you don't know. It's to do the will of God. Have you ever been tired, but then something inspires you, something you love, you know? Last week, I I was ready to just relax and chill out. And then Alex and Gabe called me and said, let's go to Roscoe's. And and so we drove to Hollywood to go get chicken and waffles, you know, and and with gravy. (laughs) Yeah, Alex had gravy. um, Yeah, and Gabe had syrup on everything. And I had already eaten, and I ate again, okay? But hey, go hang out with the guys, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, this is fun. It was, you know, you, you get energized. You you have something you want to do, and then you go and do it. Even though you're tired, oh, I can't, I can't, but all of a sudden you're inspired, you're, you're motivated. It's food for your soul. And Jesus' food was to do the will of God. And here is a conversation that is just in line with what God wants to do, and it filled him and it fed him, and so he's telling them, here it is. This is the will. And he's letting them know God is at work. The field is ready. See all these Samaritans that you thought are so far away from God. They are ripe. They are ready. And God has already been doing a work. All you have to do is now go and harvest it. The time is now. The time is ready. And he's speaking to us. Many of the Samaritans from that town, verse 39, believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. I love that. He told me everything I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him. They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This woman started a revival in her community. Here are Jesus' disciples, the ones who should know. They go into the city, they get food, they don't reach anybody they're probably like, yeah, give me that. No, don't give me that food. That food's not kosher. No, give me this. Don't talk to them. Don't talk to you. Don't look at that girl. Don't look at that woman. You know, that's against our rules, okay? And they march back. Okay, yeah. And they come back, and here comes this woman with the whole town. And it's like, Where, who, what, what's going on here? This woman knew who he was and brought everyone around. Isn't it amazing that people who encounter God want to bring others to encounter God too? And usually they're the people, you know, again, that people look down on. Well, that guy, oh man, he's such a party animal. Oh man, that person's, you know, an addict, and that person's this, and that person's that. They come to faith, and all of a sudden they're telling their friends. Why? Because Jesus is real. Now, this whole story, and we're going to stop at this point, is really teaching us that God is more inclusive than you ever imagined. That God is reaching out to the people that no one else is reaching out to. You know, last week in our questions and answers, I don't know how they got to where they did, but we we, we talked about politics, we we talked about all these different things, and, and the whole point of it was to recognize that God will not be limited by anyone or anything. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your political preference. It doesn't matter all the things that we think matter so much. Those things God doesn't care we think of them as obstacles. God doesn't see them as obstacles. He sees it as a harvest. That the field's ready. A friend of mine was telling me about this person, and he goes, wow, this person's an atheist. I don't know how they could be an atheist. You know, they're so far from God. I go, you don't know that. You don't know that they're far from God. Jesus says to that person, the harvest is ready. All it takes is a spark a revelation that they're thirsty in their soul and God changes everything. And those people who were the furthest from God in one day are the closest to God. And those people who everyone says, oh, no, don't hang around them, don't hang around. They're the people who are telling their friends. They're the people who are bringing people to a gathering like this. They're the people who are engaging in conversations and the ones who know everything and who know the Bible and who study the Bible and who study the Greek and who study the Hebrew. They don't bring anybody because they are dead dead to the world around them and to the work that God is doing. They don't see the conversations that God is having. They're having their own conversation and they're setting up walls that are keeping people from the truth of who God is. And Jesus is tearing them down and that's the whole purpose of this gospel is to show that, that the Messiah is here and he is going to save the world. Amen. Amen. So let's let him. Let's be a part of it and not a hindrance to it. Let us put away those things that would cause us to refrain from engaging in conversation with people because of those things we don't like. Well, I don't want to be around those people. Well, I'm not going to talk to those people. I'm telling you, those people is this woman. Those people that the church looks down upon, that's this woman. And that was once me. And so let's remember the power that this is proclaiming. This is, this is a pivotal moment in this gospel. This is slamming the door open and saying, "We're coming through." This is the gospel. Any questions on what we've talked about or, or what I've said? Um, no, they were all part of the Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. They were the different tribes split up because, again, political reasons. David brought them together. The southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom. But um, they were all from the same, from Israel. Um, Some would claim to be, I mean, because even those in Galilee, they were still Jewish people there. The Samaritans were a group of people who, again, were uh, mixed in their relationships. And so they weren't. Well, she still saw Jacob as her father. She still saw the Samaritans still saw themselves as having a right. The Jews didn't. Those who were not of, you know, whose lineage wasn't disrupted because of the intermarrying. They didn't think that they had the right, but the Samaritans, those who still held on to some of the Jewish beliefs, who held the five books, after that five books and after all those things, they said, well, those books aren't, those don't stand for everything. God just had this part where. Jacob and, you know, that's where we belong to. So they connected themselves to Jacob even though they didn't believe in the rest of the scriptures. And so, but yeah, they were still, they considered themselves part of the tribes, but they knew that in Jerusalem and the full-bred Jews or whatever you want to call them um, saw themselves differently. Yes, Lola? And I think that's something we can all you know, identify with, but I think, you know, it's a great point Travis is making. Life is happening around us, and God is at work in life around us, you know, and it happens in those natural ways. It happens in those just regular conversations, things that you would never imagine could lead to something, and it just starts off with, hey, can you get me some water? I mean, it's all he asked her. Yeah, I mean, I think of that, and I think of other people who aren't, I mean, who weren't in that didn't grow up in, in a Christian church, you know, in different areas. There's are so many people who God has reached that it's just amazing. And and they're going to, everyone has the ability to connect to other people, you know, based on their circles, you know. And so, I mean, the whole point is to reach, you know. And it's, again, supposed to just be a natural progression when our lives are changed. It should change the lives of others around us. Yes, Colleen? That's beautiful. You ever wonder, well, what happened with the man who wasn't her husband? Anyone ever wonder, like, did Jesus tell her anything else? Because it doesn't say he did. And that's the amazing thing, I think, is, you know, we don't see Jesus saying, now do this. But the same thing that happened to you is most likely what happened to her. You know, she probably said, yeah, I, I've i encountered God, and so I'm going to start living in a way that, you know, is consistent with who God is. And so many times we have gotten to a place where we start wanting to tell people what to do. I can know part of, I remember part of counseling that I was told if I encounter a, a couple who are living together, I need to tell them that they cannot hear the word of God or the voice of God because they're in sin and they need to leave their life of sin so that then they, the voice of God could come to their life. And I remember th- okay, yeah, I guess and they, you know there are some scriptures that kind of they'd throw and say these things, and, and but then I read this story, and it 's like, well, Jesus didn't say that, you know, and God still changed them, and God can you know i don 't think I 'm the one who has to tell everyone exactly how they 're to live. In fact, I mean, oh my gosh, you look through all of jesus 's teachings, he hardly tells anyone how they're supposed to, you know, what they should stop doing, what they should. He just tells people to seek God first, to love God. And there seems to be this underlining trust and faith that God will do what is necessary to get that person from here to there if you will start here, you know. And I think we have to have faith in God. We, You know, yeah, there's times where the conversation will, you know, lead us to be able to have uh, dialogue about certain things, but love God, you know, connect to God. And Jesus seems to trust that. And for some reason, it wasn't necessary to write all the rest. I I wish I, I wanted to see what happened when she went back, you know. Just, anyway, my thoughts. I always wonder things like that. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes, Caroline. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, it's the first time, definitely in John's gospel and you know the other gospel accounts. It seems to be later on in his ministry before he gives a, rele- a revelation that I am, you know, he or I am the Messiah. So this seems to be the first time. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think, I think the significance is that he is revealing himself to a person who is not a Jew. That a person who is would be outcast in every manner, and that's the person he reveals himself to be the Messiah. I mean, it's very similar to his genealogy as Matthew discloses the women who are not of Jewish descent that are part of the genealogy. It's in the you know incarnation, the magi coming and proclaiming that the Messiah is to be born. These are people who are outside of the circle that should know, but yet they do know. And now Jesus is going to a woman who is considered, you know, at the bottom wrong, and that's who he reveals the truth to. And so I think the significance is who he's talking to, and that here is where the Messiah is revealed in the least, you know, which is part of Jesus's theme, you know, the greatest will be the least and those who are least will be the greatest. Sure. Yeah, by all means, you know, he did the work in her because she was going to win the city over. You know, he picked the right person. You know, yeah, she definitely was someone who could further those things. Okay, any other he He said that to quite a few of the people he healed. He would tell them, don't tell anyone. But again, it was more of recognition and popularity, you know. Um, So it wouldn't just start of, you know, a big, I don't know. Yes, Lola, one more. Well, by all means, I mean, the Jewish people were looking to those who studied the law. They were looking to the Sadducees. They were looking to the Pharisees, those who put into practice those things. Yeah, they were the ones who interpreted those things, much like the church today looks to the pastors, you know, to say, okay, what are we supposed to know? Um, you know, and again, a role of a pastor. I'm not trying to minimize it, but I don't want to overemphasize it either. God still speaks to everyone. He doesn't need you to be a pastor to give you revelation, and it doesn't, it doesn't minimize, you know, our obligation to the truth. In fact. If we would all take the responsibility, what if, leading into our series, what if every one of us, you know, believed and did? What if we all acted the way this Samaritan woman did? What if we all cared? What if we all loved? What if we all gave? What if we all served? That's what was meant, okay, was to be all. But people like to be hold people into places of honor so that we could put responsibility on them. See, I think the reason we like leaders is because then it frees us from obligation. And I think a lot of times the reason we like to have pastors who tell us what to do is because then I don't have to be responsible for what to do. I'd rather have a pastor tell me what to do, because then okay, I'll do what you tell me because that's easy. I don't have to listen to God. I don't have to pray. I don't have to wait on God. I don't have to be discerning. You are. And so I'll just listen to you. Where do you want me to give my money? I don't know. You talk to God. Okay. You know, where where should I go and serve? I don't know. Where do you want to serve? Well, I don't know. I was hoping you would you know give me God's will. God's will is serve. He'll tell you. But we want to put the responsibility on someone else. Or I think we do a lot. And so, okay, let's pray before we end up talking about politics. (laughs) Lord, I do thank you for, again, the power of this passage that we read and how relevant it is to us and throughout all time how it gives us insight into your heart and clarity into how you do the most amazing things in the most unlikely places and father i pray that we would always be mindful of that that our eyes would be open when we are at the well that we would hear the voice of that person who's asking a question or even better yet, if we would ask a question of that person that no one would dare talk to, that we would actually make ourselves in a place in a position of needing from them and then engaging them at that place. So many things in this passage. Thank you for Our time together, Lord, bless everyone, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.